Hello, friends and adventurers. Our podcast has been supported for months now by Misty Mountain Gaming, and they're now rewarding you, our listeners, with savings on all their fine D&D products, such as metal dice, stone dice, glass dice, miniatures, adventures, dice trays, and more. You can use the code TWINS10, that's T-W-I-N-S-1-0, to save 10% on all purchases made in their online store at MistyMountainGaming.com. Every code redeemed helps support Steven and I, and encourages us to make more and better content for you. So be sure to use code TWINS10 whenever you're buying premium Dungeons & Dragons dice and gear from our good friends at MistyMountainGaming.com. Okay, on with the show. Welcome back, friends and adventurers, to another episode of Bardic Twinspiration, a topical podcast where my brother and I talk about Dungeons and Dragons. I'm the D&D wannabe. My name is Rob. And I am the aforementioned brother, Steven. Thank you so much for coming back as we continue to discuss this one D&D playtest packet regarding the newly released expert classes. We talked about the first release two episodes ago. Last episode, we discussed all things bards, and now we have moved on to weirder and ranger things. Ah, see what you did there. I'm just going to keep getting as much mileage out of that joke as I can. So (laughs) let's go ahead and address the elephant in the room. Rangers were hilariously bad in 5th edition, (laughs) at least at the outset. They they really were the the New Jersey of... (laughs) Classes. Oh, ouch. <laughs> yeah, that's that's probably unfair. They were a popular thing to pick on, whether or not they deserved it. They wound up getting an overhaul. They're the only class in 5e that they said, no, we need to go back and fix this. It was so bad. And they wound up coming out with subclasses like the Horizon Walker, the Gloom Stalker, that really did a lot to restore people's faith in them, to make them the badasses that they were probably always meant to be. Hey, I made a Gloomstalker Ranger for one of our long shots that we did on the Misty Mountain Gaming Twitch channel, and uh, I actually had a lot of fun with him, and he was pretty effective, we've got to admit. But yes, now what do you mean when you say that they had to go back and fix the Ranger halfway through 5e? Are you talking about the changes that they made in Tasha's? What I'm addressing is the revised Ranger that came out in 2016's Unearthed Arcana. Only a couple of years after the launch of the entire edition, they were already saying, oh, we messed up. Whoops. Yes. (laughs) Well, I know that Tasha's added in a lot of optional features for a lot of classes, which just strictly improved them. And the Ranger did get several. The Ranger got a lot of options in Tasha's to swap out new features to replace their existing ones, which is one of the only times, I possibly the only time that I'm currently aware of, that that did happen. Most of the others just added things, like, say, you know, the Rogue's ability to use steady aim. That's just an additional feature. It didn't replace anything. But the Ranger did have multiple instances of features replacing the ones originally included in the 2014 Player's Handbook. 
Funny that you mention the optional features in Tasha's, however, there is overlap between how the Ranger looks now and what they decided could be done with the Ranger in Tasha's. So if you are already playing a Ranger who's using some of those optional features, very necessary upgrades, this version of the Ranger is going to look a lot more familiar to you than anyone who skipped that book. All right, well, let's not waste any more time then. Let's go ahead and dive in. A lot of things about the Ranger at level one are going to be familiar, such as their D10 hit die. Your proficiencies are still going to be in strength and dexterity saving throws, and you're still going to have those classic outdoorsman skills. Let me go ahead and address this here. With 1D&D, we are seeing an emphasis. In fact, with D&D as a whole, we are seeing a move in the direction of abandoning preconceptions about your race and about your background and being able to customize your character to be good at exactly the things that you want them to be good at. It started with Tasha's and the Anarth Arcana that came out before then. It has made its way into Mordenkainen's Tome of Foes, which is very much changing the way that races work in 5e, and 1D&D is doing the same thing with backgrounds. Why are we still choosing skills from a finite list that is dependent upon our class? I get that it's to help flavor, but a halfling being a small creature is to help flavor. Like, Why is this the one thing that so far we are wanting to hang on to. Why don't we just say, choose three skills? I, I, I love that the bards get that opportunity to pick from anything, and that makes them special. We could do something else to make the bard special. Go ahead and give that freedom to everyone if that's the direction you're going. It, I'm soapboxing a little bit. It's, it's weird that this is the holdout to me. What do you think? Uh, I f- find it strange that, you know, for once I'm in the position of trying to say, maybe it's okay that we preserve flavor. I guess at some point, there should be something from a proficiency standpoint that separates the classes. And this is a fine place to put it, I guess. I mean, when you're choosing your background, you already have unlocked proficiencies. You can put two proficiencies anywhere you want during your background selection. So the fact that you have to pick from a list for your class, it it is not really a big deal to me. I mean, I I am also generally in favor of complete customization. You know, you're usually the one who's in favor of limiting options in order to preserve a certain je ne sais quoi, a a certain flavor to a class to make them distinct from the others. And it, it doesn't really bother me that this is a place that they've got it, especially not when they're unlocking it in other areas. You know, it's not like in 5th edition, where until you got the option to create custom backgrounds, skill proficiencies from those backgrounds are locked in, and your class selections are locked in to very small lists of choices. At least you're getting to pick two anywhere you want as any class, as any character. It doesn't really bother me that three of them have to come from a list. Just kind of weird for me to be in the position of saying... I I don't know. I'm okay with having my options limited here. I'm okay with having my options limited in general, but if I'm going to not have them anywhere else, it feels strange that there is a holdout. That's all I'm saying. I mean, I guess. You know, if you're going to have a holdout, this is the place to put it. Uh, That's kind of where I'm at. So beyond that, rangers are still primarily a martial class. They're going to be proficient in light and medium armor. They're going to be proficient in shields and every weapon that there is out there. Starting equipment-wise, it's worth noting that since they might have to be buying more expensive armor than the Bard is going to have access to, or more weapons, since they are going to be a little more limited in the spells department, they get a bigger budget. They have half again as much as a Bard. But Rangers can get expensive, depending on how you want to play them. 
just feels weird that the guy that's out there in the woods hunting has more money than the what I imagine is a cosmopolitan <laughs> class like a bard. Oh well, let's go ahead and dive right in to the class features. A level one ranger gets to enjoy three features straight off the bat. And one of them, the bard, had to wait for. Which, I'll go ahead and say, is the most features that you can get in a single level, as far as we know, where classes are concerned. Both the rogue and the ranger have a single level, both at first level, where you get three features. And after that, uh, I think the most we saw on the bard was two. Mm. And neither the ranger nor the rogue will ever see two features at the same level again for the rest of their progression. So, finally, we get a class that gets a little bit front-loaded, that gets a lot of things off the bat. For those of you who listened to our last episode, or just who have played 5th edition, will probably recognize the expertise feature. It is, functions exactly the same way as it did in 5th edition, and it functions exactly the same way as it did for the Bard. You gain expertise in two of your existing skill proficiencies. And, of course, expertise doubles your proficiency bonus when applied to those two skills. At level 1, you have a proficiency bonus of plus 2. These two skills will benefit from that bonus twice and get a cumulative plus four. This is already a big change for the ranger class. The base ranger did not touch expertise. They did not get to double their proficiency bonus to any of their skills. And as we're going to see as we go through the ranger class, they're going to get this class feature more than once. So putting the ranger in the expert classification is giving them an emphasis on skills and being talented and effective outside of combat that was not felt before. And in the interview between Kenrick and Crawford, when they were talking about this particular release of the playtest material, they were mentioning how anyone of the expert class should feel like an authority in their area of expertise, literally in their area of expertise, right? The ranger should be the outdoorsman in your party. They should be the survival expert. The doomsday prepper. <laughs> Right. I mean, kind of in a way. These are the guys who should be the master of their favored terrain. You know, even though favored terrain isn't a feature that they have anymore. Spoiler, they should be good at things. They should be able to handle themselves outdoors like a rogue handles themselves in an urban environment. And expertise is a great way to express that. And that makes a lot of sense. If you are in a social situation, you want a bard nearby. If you are skulking around in the dark or in a dungeon, it'd be great to have a rogue. And if you are traveling overland or in the wilderness, having a ranger sure would be great. And now the mechanics are fitting the flavor that we kind of all would naturally assume is there. Right. And of course, a bard can pick proficiency in whatever they want, and therefore can apply their expertise to pretty much whatever they want. So a bard can be just as sneaky as a ranger can. And by extension, a ranger who has, you know, some sort of uh, maybe a charlatan sort of background or something can put those expertise into their sleight of hand or their deception. So, it, you know, it's not telling you what you need to be good at necessarily to, you know, to your point about having more options, but it is saying you're going to be good at something. You're going to be very reliable at borderline the authority in your party at something. We've talked before about how I really like to be the guy in the group, and the expert classes are all geared toward making you the guy at something, and the ranger's going to be the outdoors guy. This is why I loved the scout archetype so much. They got expertise in outdoorsy type skills and also some additional movement and also some comfortability in places where others are uncomfortable and that's why i'm really excited about this ranger this better than anything that has come before it in 5e as we continue to go through the class features is going to fulfill my ranger 
fantasy. Uh, there we go again. Rob behaving out of character and telling you what he thinks beforehand instead of burying the lead. Uh, I don't know what this one D&D playtest packet has done to my brother, guys, but I guess we'll see how that affects the podcast moving forward. I want you to look forward to what is coming in the rest of this episode like I am looking forward to talking about it. So let's let's go ahead and go to the next thing. Well, the last thing I want to say on expertise is, of course, you know, it doesn't pigeonhole you into the recommended, say, stealth and survival skills. Uh, it does say, hey, these are great options for a ranger. If you already have proficiency in them, these are good pickups that are going to kind of lean into that flavor. But if you want to play your ranger as an urban bounty hunter and have expertise in those skills, then there's nothing stopping you from doing it. It's just you are going to be good at something. You're going to be the guy for something. And I think that that is a great addition to the Ranger's kit. I think that it replaces things like, say, Favored Terrain, which is something that you could pick that at level one as a Ranger in 5e, and based on where the adventure took you, it could never come up. Mm. But expertise is always going to come up, and it's going to come up because you make it, because those are the things that you want to be good at, because those are the things that you want to do. Speaking of favoring stuff, as you said, Favored Terrain is not going to be coming into it. Favored Enemy is going to come into it. It's going to come into it at level 1, but it looks very different from what you're going to remember from 5th edition. Instead of making a choice as to what creature type you are interested in being an expert on and taking down, that is now going to be a case-by-case, moment-by-moment decision tied in a future ability to an improved version of Hunter's Mark which you get access to that improved Hunter's Mark at level one. Now, let's talk about the old favorite enemy for a second, because it used to be highly irrelevant, from my opinion at least. Okay, you select one type of enemy from amongst all the different monster types, or you can select two different variations of humanoid, and all that the benefit gave you is that you got advantage on survival checks to track them, and intelligence checks to recall information about them. And, you know, sure, you also got to learn a language of your choice that's spoken by those enemies. But, I mean, let's face it, learning their language is probably the most generically useful part of that class feature. I'll I'll qualify this. I don't think the old feature was irrelevant. I do think that it was out of your control. Because you are so rarely in control of what you face. Because it's all about what the dungeon master puts in front of you. If your favorite enemy is dragons and your dungeon master doesn't put a lot of dragons in your path because they're feeling nice for whatever reason, you're going to have a bad time. You're not going to get much effect out of this class feature. The good news about favorite enemy in one D&D is that ball is back in your court. You get to decide what your quote unquote favored enemy is every time you cast this spell. Right. I think that the favorite enemy from 5th edition was very thematically appropriate. I just don't think that it came up very much in the game. Because as you said, there's, it's not in your ability to control when it's going to be relevant. And when it finally happens, when there's finally a dragon on the table to be found and fought, you get to find out where they are. <laughs> it doesn't actually do anything to help you kill a dragon. It helps you find the dragon. You know, you can think about the dragon a little bit better. But I very much appreciate the fact that this new class feature, even if it is a little bit odd and I'm not, like, super excited about it and how it's being implemented, I'm at least excited about the fact that it is going to be consistently useful. So uh, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about what it is and how it works. Yeah. So, again, 
it, kind of like we were talking about in the bar in the last episode. If you haven't listened to the last episode, go back and listen to it. We're going to be building on a lot of the stuff that we began there here. The one D&D content is very much focused on building and improving upon the tools that it gives you rather than giving you new tools. So the best parts about how a new ranger is going to use Hunter's Mark are being withheld until a higher level. But even the base version is going to be an improvement. For a ranger, Hunter's Mark does not count against any of their prepared spells. And yes, prepared spells, not spells known, that is already a difference for the ranger, is you do not have to pick spells. ka I am going to be a fan of this whenever it comes up for every class that it affects. Being a prepared spellcaster is such a marked improvement by itself. To say nothing of the fact that now the way that spellcasting works as a prepared spellcaster is that you can now prepare spells equal to the number of spell slots available at any given level which means that as we progress in our ranger levels, we're going to end up with additional spells known as well. We're getting improvements coming and going from every caster and half-caster that gets to prepare spells. It is even better than normal prepared spell casting back in 5e. I'm sorry, continue about favorite enemy in Hunter's Mark. I just had to say, if we're going to bring that up, it's a big deal. So in addition to that, you don't have to concentrate on Hunter's Mark which is marked improvement. Also, it lasts for its full duration. Presumably, it's going to remain an hour. It's going to last for the next hour without you having to expend any extra effort until you're incapacitated, which would end concentration on spells if you had to hold them. So that is that is the same, effectively, as it was in 5e. Or until you end it as a bonus action, which I'm, I'm going to go ahead and point that out. I wonder if... Ending concentration on spells is going to require a bonus action in 1 D&D. It, it seems like a very weird couple of words they added into this paragraph that aren't addressed anywhere else in the document. But, I don't know, it's something to look out for. That's, that's very interesting that they specify what it takes to end a lack of concentration on this spell. In, in 5e, it doesn't ask you to do anything. But, and Ranger players in 5th edition will probably already be wondering about this, even if I have Hunter's Mark, I don't have the ability to cast spells until second level. Well, my friend, the one D&D ranger can cast spells right from the get-go. They can indeed, which means unlike the bard, which at first level actually had less spells known than their 5e counterpart, the one D&D ranger actually has more because they couldn't do it at all. <laughs> At first level in 5e. So they have de facto more spells, and they get to prepare them. Speaking of preparing your spells, uh, I think it is worth noting that they are going to be selecting from the primal spell list, uh, surprising no one. Yes, and they can prepare any of the primal spells except evocation spells. We're making sure that the ranger is not turning into a damage caster. We're keeping them as a primarily martial class and reserving those spells for the druids to give them some class identity and make them the natural nukes that they are meant to be. As you expect in 5e, your wisdom is going to be your spellcasting ability. You can now use druid spellcasting focuses, which is an optional rule they added in later on in 5th edition. And I should also mention, as I did before, that you're going to be preparing spells equal to the number of spell slots that you have available to cast from. So at first level, you're going to go ahead and get an improvement because, again, you know... Two's more than zero. Yeah. 
it is more than zero. And then you're going to get caught up to the 5th edition ranger for a couple of levels, but as early as level 5, the 1D&D ranger is going to just run away with it. You're going to be able to prepare more spells per day than the sum total of spells known at that level in 5th edition. So from 5th level on, you're just going to see a marked improvement as a caster. Again, to say nothing of the fact that they have an expanded spell list to choose from. I mean, just better better, better. The rangers will be better casters in every conceivable way. This is so exciting. Ranger was good at fighting, but they weren't really as good as a fighter. They were good at spe- they were they were not even really that good at spellcasting. I don't know why I was about to say that. <laughs> no, they kind of that they left a lot to be desired. If you wanted to do a little bit of damage and do a little bit of spellcasting, the bard was there. The ranger wasn't really in that conversation. They should have been but they were just such an unattractive option. This really does bring them very... Er- uh, conversely, my big problem with the Bard was they felt bad early levels. Ranger feels pretty good early <laughs> levels. Speaking of, let's go ahead and talk about the rest of that progression because we've kind of covered everything that they're going to get at level one. You're going to get two prepared spells from the primal spell list, anything that's not evocation, plus Hunter's Mark because that doesn't count against the spells that you can prepare each day. Moving on to second level, just like in 5e, the ranger is going to pick up a fighting style. And this functions more or less the same way that you would have expected it to in 5th edition. Of course, now the fighting styles are actually feats. So you just get to pick up a feat that is specifically a fighting style feat. Notably, the dueling fighting style is not an option, whereas it used to be in 5e. That being said, I can't think of any rangers that I even entertained the notion of making that would have taken the dueling fighting style. So on a personal level, I'm not missing that. Here's the interesting thing about that. (laughs) So the fighting style feats are restricted to the warrior group, normally speaking. Mm -hmm. True. So if you were a second level member of any of these other classes, or if you were looking at a feat for any of these other classes, you would not be allowed to take them. Ah. We would be having to be wait for a subsequent playtest material covering the warrior classes to really see who could make the most of those things. So the fact that you're getting one at all is a little bit of a bump. Also, I know multi-classing is a little less attractive with some of these other classes, but if you took your first level in a warrior class and then moved over to ranger, you could spend that first level feat on dueling, on the dueling fighting style. So if you really wanted that to happen, it would not be all that difficult to get access to it. That's true. And if you did, you would have two fighting styles online by level three. I guess that is a good point because I really hadn't put much thought into the fact that this is an opportunity not just to take an additional feat of a particular type, but it's a particular type that most classes would not have access to. Actually, that is something that when we were going over the different classifications for the other expert classes and the warrior classes, one of the things that is a hallmark of the expert classes presented here is that they do get to raid other classes' shtick. Mm -hmm. And we see that already with the ranger. Right, and I mean, that's kind of the shtick of half-casters in general, but it's also now the shtick of the expert classes. So the ranger is not only dipping their toes into the priest class by unlocking the primal spell list and preparing spells like a druid would, they're also dipping their toes into the warrior class by getting these fighting styles. Are you getting excited yet? I'm, I'm already getting a little excited <laughs> about the ranger. 
Level three, you know what's coming. You are going to get to choose a subclass. We have the Hunter presented for us. We'll be covering that after we get through the rest of the Base Rangers class features and telling you the kind of stuff that you could expect here and at subsequent points of the Rangers progression. Just like we did for the Bard, we'll give you a heads up whenever these are going to be relevant in your level up progression. And just like you would expect at level four, you get a feat, which once again is changed now. Feats are part of 1D&D. They're not an optional rule any longer. You could take the feat to get an ability score improvement, or you get one of the cool new feats that we're going to be talking about soon. You know what? I'm going to go ahead and drop this in here because I really wanted to mention it earlier. All of the fourth level feats that have been presented to us so far in the playtest material here have been what we used to refer to as half feats, which is a feat that also comes with a single point of an ability score improvement. Which, that's a terrible moniker, because you'd think it'd be a half ability score improvement, or like a feat and a half. A half feat just doesn't sound right. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I and I griped about that back in our feat episode. Uh, I guess I'm, I'm not going to do it again, but my complaint still stands. That's hopefully why you never hear Wizards of the Coast use that terminology. It's, it's a kind of a community terminology, and an erroneous one at that, in our opinion. But all of the ability score improvements that you unlock at fourth level because you will unlock additional options at fourth level as opposed to the ones that you could have taken as a first level character do come with a single point of ability score improvement so you can either get one of those take a single point of ability score improvement and get an additional feature or you can double down on the numbers and get two ability score improvements using the ability score improvement feat I, th- I feel like I've said those words a whole heck of a lot in those few sentences. You've been you've been talking about feet a lot. It is all right. That is an exciting... I, I really want to talk about it, too. It's good that we have that out of the way. That is going to make talking about the feats at the end of this playtest material so much more interesting. Even if nothing else changes about the feet, getting a plus one to a fourth level feat is a out-and-out improvement. Like I said in our feats episode, the fact that you can get a numerical bonus in addition to picking up, you know, an extra option to do either in a social encounter or a combat encounter, it's just good. Like the value of being able to turn an odd number into an even number in order to get the associated bonuses that come with that improvement can't be understated. So the fact that that is now built into all of the fourth level feats means that I feel like it's strongly encouraging people to branch out and pick some more of these things up and not just take the ability score improvement feat as often. Now, granted, you know, you might have two odd numbers on your sheet that you want to increase both at the same time. And for those of you who do, that option is available for you. Moving on, let's talk about what you get at fifth level, because as always, fifth level's a big deal. For the Ranger, as always, we're going to be seeing a proficiency bonus improvement from your plus two that we've had to settle for for the past four levels, finally up to a plus three, which means not only are you getting better at all of the skills you're proficient in, you are now also getting to double down on that expertise feature that you got at level one, meaning that those skills are getting additional improvements. In addition, you are also getting access to second level spells, and you're getting to prepare two of them daily. Uh, You are now getting a fourth first level spell, and you're unlocking the extra attack feature. Fifth level is always a big deal. It feels like even more of a big deal now to one D&D Rangers. Right, while the... While the Bard had a class feature that was directly tied to the proficiency bonus, and it was even more exciting when that number finally got a bump, it's still going to be helping the Ranger out quite a lot at quite a lot of things in bigger ways than it did in 5e. 
that increase in the spell slots is not going to be a slouch either. You're going to be able to prepare more spells and cast more spells. Those are going to be tied perfectly across the spellcasting classes if they don't make any changes to this content. Yeah, uh, this is such a big bump. Like, even if all they got at 5th level, which thank goodness it's not, but even if all they got at 5th level was this increase to their spells, it would be probably enough. Because as a half-caster who doesn't get access to as many spells as, you know, the full casters do, you are getting an additional 1st level spell and two additional 2nd level spells that you can cast every long rest, but that's also an increase of three spells known at this level. To put that into context, you are doubling your amount of spells known at fifth level. Plus, you're doubling the number of attacks you get on your turn as well. You still get the extra attack class feature at fifth level as a ranger. This is going to be good, especially the way that Hunter's Mark is going to be working for you now. You are going to be really pumping out the damage. Furthermore, teasing something that is going to be at the last part of this document and the final part of our discussion of this material, the way that you can use two-weapon fighting has changed. It no longer costs your bonus action. So you're looking at making three attacks on your turn if you were a two-weapon kind of ranger, using that hunter's mark three times, and subsequently still having your bonus action freed up to cast a spell. It's going to be a big boost on your damage per turn as a ranger when you hit fifth level when we were talking about the bards last episode i said that 15th level was where the bards showed their most significant power increase for the ranger for my money it's here at fifth level there is no other level during their progression where they are going to see such a marked difference and like i said fifth level is a big deal for anyone but for the one dnd ranger it is the most impactful level they will ever experience and uh, certainly of the three classes that we already have, it's unrivaled. Level 5 for a bard and a rogue has nothing on the excitement of turning level 5 for a ranger. So how does level so how does turning level 6 stack up? You get a subclass feature. Yeah, it depends on So it it's going to depend on the subclass you're going to pick. <laughs> All right, insert subclass feature here. We'll cover some of those for the hunter in just a little bit. Moving on to 7th level, we get a is this a new feature? No, it, this is from your favorite book, man. This is from Tasha's. All right, 7th level adds roving. The feature says that you increase your movement speed by 10 whenever you aren't wearing heavy armor, which is something that you're not proficient in by default. So pretty much means you're increasing your movement speed by 10 unless you've gone out of your way to get additional armor class. Plus, it means that you also have a climb speed and a swim speed equal to your speed. If you're of a normal ancestry that comes with a 30-foot movement, that means that you have a 40-foot movement speed now, in addition to a 40-foot climbing speed and a 40-foot swimming speed. I'm expecting Difficult Terrain to feature a little bit more prominently since they are so sincerely simplifying it, and we'll get to that as we continue through the document for 1D&D. And being able to circumnavigate that so easily with a single class feature is going to be a big deal because... Climbing would normally be considered difficult terrain, or the slowed condition, I think is what it's called now. Swimming would do the same thing. This is going to get you around that 
Furthermore, roving, as it appeared in Tasha's, only increased your speed by 5 feet. Even though you gained it at 6th level, you were getting an improved version of it for waiting that extra level. Twice as good one level later. Now, we don't know very much about underwater combat in 6th edition yet, but if it works the way that 5e does, just having a swim speed at all means that you are going to be as effective in water combat as you are in land combat, which is a big deal that I don't think we should understate here. It's going to really broaden your choice of weapons. We covered that in the weapons episode, how finite the effective weapons list was when you are underwater. But a swimming speed will completely negate that for you. Right. If you want to go into the water wielding two short swords with your two-weapon fighting style you are not going to be penalized for that. And now, again, of course, this is assuming that 6e water combat works the same way that 5e water combat does, but until they tell us differently, then, you know, maybe that's a safe assumption. I will note something that comes up later on. I'm not sure if it works this way in 5th edition, because I don't think it's ever really come up for me in 5th edition, because I don't play as characters that have climbing or swimming speeds. But during any particular given movement, you can only use one type of speed at a time. So if you have a 40-foot movement speed, you cannot transition from 20 foot of swimming to 20 foot of climbing. Those must be separated as different movements, which, is it that way in 5e? I don't know that off the top of my head, and I'm too lazy to look it up. <laughs> but that's how it's going to work in 1D&D, apparently. But that's, that's fine. You know, you're, you're not triathloning here. You're going to be moving in one medium... And you, as a ranger, are going to be moving better in that medium than just about any class. And it makes sense that you, you know, have to change your tactics when you go from running across a field to climbing up a cliff. You know, maybe that does require a certain amount of pause. A little bit of a transition. <laughs> yeah. You know what would be cool is if when they come out with monks, they removed that restriction and you can just freaking run straight up the wall. That would be interesting. Or, you know, you can run up the wall without using your climb speed or something like that. We'll, we'll see how they handle that whenever they come out with the fighting classes. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and call right now. They're going to have something to overcome that restriction in some way, shape, or form. If not in the base class, then certainly in a subclass. That's, that's just got to be in there. So, roving. No longer a optional feature from a supplemental book. It is now part of your kit. You get it one level later, but it's twice as good, and that's pretty awesome. And again, I really liked the Scout subclass. I think I might have said it as though it were a Ranger earlier, and I apologize. The Scout was a Rogue subclass that turned me into the kind of Ranger that I wanted to play. I had to play a Rogue to be the kind of Ranger that I wanted to be. (laughs) And now this is that sweet spot. This is the outdoor Rogue that I wanted. They're speedy. They're skilled. They're good at what they do. They cast some magic. It's great. I have heard other content creators out there lamenting the loss of some of the more flavorful aspects of a 5e ranger. You know, things like how the favored enemy used to function or favored terrain and things like that. Kind of making the ranger fit the theme that they were originally, you know, kind of set out to fulfill. But, you know, I'm like you. I feel like in 5th edition, you can play a better ranger by being a rogue. And I think that now in 6th edition, blurring the line between those two a bit, well, you're not really blurring the line, but, you know, sharing so many commonalities between these two different types of experts, I think is probably a good move to help you get there functionally. Without losing a whole lot of flavor, you're actually going to get to do some of the things that you want to do as a ranger. 
All that being said, let's continue to move on through this progression. Uh, at eighth level, you get a feat. You you have options. You you get to get stuff. You know, it's uh, it's the thing you've always gotten at eighth level, right? It's standard. It's to be expected, but it's appreciated. It always feels good to get a feat. Ninth level, I told yep. you you were going to get expertise again. You get expertise again. Two more things that you are good at, you just got even better at. It also comes with the added bonus of a bigger proficiency bonus and a further expanded spell list by consequence of getting access to a new level of spell. Moving on to 10th level, you get to add an additional cantrip. It only happens once in your whole progression <laughs> as a ranger, but this is where it happens, halfway to level 20. You're halfway there, you get 50% more cantrips. Hey, old rangers didn't get cantrips at all, so this is great. <laughs> it's, a, it's a boon. Maybe we should have mentioned that back in the uh, back of the spellcasting. We probably table. should have. Whiskey okay. tastes good. You know what? You got... <laughs> <laughs> you know what? As a level one ranger, you got two cantrips. You can pick them from the whole primal spell list. It's pretty nice. But uh, here at 10th level, you get to pick up one more. Other than that, all you get is a subclass feature, so you better hope it's a good one. That You know, that's the kind of the hard thing about being a half caster is you only get an improvement in your spell slots and spells known every two levels. You know, so the fact that you can prepare now makes that a whole lot more tolerable, but it does kind of sparse out your improvements. So here's hoping that that's a pretty dope subclass feature when we go to look at the hunter later on. Moving on from there, we get to 11th level when we're back to getting standard ranger features. Here we get tireless. And just like other optional features, just like stuff with we saw with the bard, it's coming a level late to what the 5th edition class would be used to. But this version of tireless looks a little different from the way that it worked for a 5th edition ranger using the optional rules. Now, whenever you finish a rest of any kind, you can give yourself temporary hit points equal to a d8 plus your proficiency bonus, which at this point is going to be a plus 4, a d8 plus 4, and it's only going to go up from there. Not by much, it can only ever be a d8 plus 6, but that's every time you rest without having to expend any actions or class resources, it just happens. That's true. Now, it does look like in 5th edition you were able to do it more often because you were able to do it a number of times equal to your proficiency bonus. It was a feature that might have been useful out of combat, like in preparation. You would use it before you go into a combat, and you could do this several times. That being said, you know, maybe there is something to be said for it being passive. Um, now you don't have to remember it, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, it, I don't know. I, I am the person who would... And it doesn't cost an action. I'm the person who would have remembered that, though. And, you know, being able to do it, it would have been a little bit more effective because I probably... Mm, would I have maxed out my wisdom as a ranger? That's a good question. Because the ceiling is higher in the 5th edition version, right? Because of your wisdom modifier, which you could have maxed up to a 20 at this level level then again i don't know that i would i think i feel like as a ranger i probably would have been focusing on my dexterity so functionally this is probably as good or better and again you know if you're, if you're looking at the fact that you're going to be doing it every time you do a short rest that's probably supposed to be around two times per adventuring day plus you get it when you're long rest so functionally you're getting it about three times per day i don't know yeah i guess you're right it, it feels it, it's probably more equivalent than i initially thought Speaking of things that are equivalent, we have an additional feature of Tireless at level 11, which is exactly the same on the surface as the 5th edition optional class feature. When you finish a short rest, you decrease your exhaustion level if you are exhausted by 1. Exactly the same, except we're going to discover 
that this playtest material has nerfed exhaustion. Yes, they have pretty hard. Do you want to go ahead and discuss that since it might be relevant or not? Yeah, let's let's go ahead. So used to be there was a very quickly uh, compounding list of negative effects for exhaustion in 5th edition. There were only five levels of exhaustion, and it started bad with disadvantage on ability checks, and it got worse from there, and if you made it down to five, your severely hampered character, who is likely to not be able to fix their situation... Straight up died. Straight up died, as as you said. Straight up died. Now, in 1D&D, exhaustion is a little bit more tolerable, maybe? As, at least, it is certainly more tolerable in that there are now more levels of exhaustion. That's more levels in between fine and dead. Uh, let's go ahead and take a look at those. There are now 10 levels of exhaustion, uh, and each level has the same effect. It just compounds with the one before it, as opposed to having unique effects that appear when you reach certain levels of exhaustion. Namely, in one D&D, when you make a D20 test, you subtract your exhaustion level from the D20 roll. So at one level of exhaustion, you're constantly subtracting one. And at two levels of exhaustion, you're constantly subtracting two. And it makes it really easy to remember as opposed to constantly having to, like, consult the exhaustion chart. So uh, I'm, t- I'm torn on this as a dungeon master. I'm not at all torn on this as a ranger. As a ranger, I'm happy to get rid of exhaustion however it manifests itself. That's a good ability. Mm-hmm. Because the way that it has always worked and the way that it does currently work for non-ranger characters who do not have this feature is that you normally remove a single level of exhaustion every time you finish a long rest. Right. And now, for the rangers, short rest is good enough. Short rest is good enough. Oh, I guess I should mention, before we completely move on from exhaustion, that it does have one additional effect, which I only recently noticed and I'm very not excited about, which is that if you are a caster, such as a ranger in this case, who has a spell save DC, your spell save DC is lowered by your exhaustion level. Yeah. While you're affected by it. So if, you know, my current character who has a spell save DC of 18 was made in 1D&D for each level of exhaustion, that would start to tick down until it went back to below even potentially where it started with him as a third level character. And that's fair, frankly, because (laughs) with the way that 5th edition exhaustion worked, casters who cast spells that imposed saving throws kind of found the niche in exhaustion. They basically functioned normally in combat because they were usually in the back. They didn't have to do a lot of moving around. They didn't have to do a lot of rolling themselves. They fought just fine. And now there is a penalty. With the way that exhaustion works now, it's D20 test, again, is a broad definition. It's every time you pick up a D20 and constantly subtracting something from that is not fun. Right. But at least I can still move. At least I can still take actions. At least my maximum hit points haven't been lowered. Exhaustion was scarier to me in 5e than it is here, and it was certainly more lethal. But the moral of the story is a fifth, a 1D&D ranger is basically not going to have to worry about it. You know what? I bet we're going to see a lot more effects that apply exhaustion in 1D&D now that they've kind of taken the teeth out of it, and that's just going to make being a ranger that much better. Honestly, I'm kind of hoping we do. When you when you make something less intimidating, I want to see more of it to compensate. Rob's inner masochist coming out. <laughs> I think it will lend itself a little bit too to a little bit of a grittier game that losing Song of Rest kind of pushed us away from 
that it's going to matter if you get your water and your rest and your food each day. What did you say? Your Triscuits and your... <laughs> yes. your I don't know. I, you didn't say Triscuits and coffee, but Triscuits and something. I, for, I forgot what I said too. Whatever it was. You're going to want to make sure that you are taking care of yourself because exhaustion is not going to be fun and it will stack. And every time you try something, because that's what a D20 test is, is when your character tries something, they're going to suck. Big tangent. Back to Rangers. Going on to 12th level, you get another feat just like you used to, and they're just as cool or better than the old ones. Moving on to 13th level, we unlock the Nature's Veil ability. This is a new ability that says you invoke the spirits of nature to magically hide yourself from view. It basically allows you to become invisible by using a bonus action. Typically, of course, invisibility being an action spell, uh, it does still require you to expend a spell slot, although it doesn't specify the size of that spell slot. That is true. So here is here's the interesting thing for this, and I'm glad they don't specify because rangers don't get a lot and they don't get very high level spell slots, so that is fair. It's not allowing you to cast invisibility as the spell. That is an important factor. Mm -hmm. It only lasts until the end of your next turn. So you're going to get a maximum use of two rounds of invisibility. But the things that you can do in two rounds of being invisible at the expense of only a first level slot and only using your bonus action, I mean, you know, the possibilities aren't endless, but they're certainly vast. Right, and normally invisibility is going to be a second level spell slot, so you are getting to cast it at a discount for that shorter duration. And it also does not say that invisibility ends if you attack or cast another spell. That is kind of a detriment from the actual spell that is not included here. This is this is pretty slick, not gonna lie. That is actually neat. I hadn't considered that. And you're doing that as your bonus action. That means you're getting two rounds of attacks this turn if you are committing to being that martial character that this class wants you to be. Yeah, I'm looking over the invisible condition right now, and there is nothing in the condition, of course, that says that it would end if you attack or cast a spell. That is a feature of the invisibility spell text. Meaning that, yeah, absolutely, you can just use this and then get advantage on your attack rolls because your targets can't see you. You can give them disadvantage on attacking you and just be untargetable to a lot of enemy actions. You can evade attacks of opportunity. There's just, invisible is good. Like the only reason that the invisibility spell isn't just like a must have is because it requires your concentration. Note, this doesn't because it's a second level spell slot and because you can't do very much while you are invisible in terms of your actions in combat. Yeah. I suddenly am a big fan of this feature. <laughs> and just all rangers get to do this? This isn't even like a subclass thing? I mean, hey, this is why is this at 13th level? <laughs> because I'm probably not going to get to play very many 13th level rangers, but I kind of want to do this. And again, I like that they're putting some of these exciting class features towards the back here so high a level that no one will ever actually get to touch it <laughs> well no because now if we get there i'm incentivized not to multi-class i'm rewarded for staying true to the class that i set out to play sure there's going to be a gimmicky multi-class that's going to make you very powerful early levels but here is your reward if you wanted to stick it out and this is a good one and i'm, I'm quite mm. chuffed 
with this. Ah, <laughs> oh, man, I am so excited about that. This is this is my favorite ranger feature. Like <laughs> on on par with the ability to prepare spells. This is as good as magical secrets for the bard for me. No. I mean, it's good. You can do this every two turns using a first level spell slot and a bonus action and just benefit from this ability constantly the entire combat. I mean, you're going to get some other cool spells, but this is this is sufficient. Yeah, 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 yeah. No. As soon as I'm done casting Hunter's Mark with the bonus action on turn number one, this is turn number two. I don't know, man. This is like the Ranger Divine Smite. Like, this is where all of my spell slots are going, you know? <laughs> I mean, obviously it has no parallels to Divine Smite, but, you know, it's like this is going to be the thing that I save my spell slots for. I would probably rather use my spell slots for this than anything else. You know, granted, we're going to talk a little bit later about how reliant the Ranger is on Hunter's Mark if you use certain class features, certain subclass features. That's gonna We're going to get into that with a Hunter, but I don't know, man. This is on par with one of my favorite things you can do with a first level slot. Well, moving on from that. Uh, oh, I, I should say before we get off of 13th level, new spells, bigger spell slot. Congratulations. Yay, you. You did it. You made it there. <laughs> Uh, you also are enjoying a higher proficiency bonus. Those are kind of going in tandem as we go down the class features. Yep, we get a plus five proficiency bonus and fourth level spells. Going beyond that, subclass feature again at 14th level and on to 15th, we're going to get blind sight. Yeah, <laughs> we're going to get feral <laughs> senses and we're going to be able to turn ourselves invisible and see invisible creatures out to a range of 30 feet. You're not hiding from blind sight. There's no way. The feature is called Feral Senses, and it grants you blindsight out to a range of 30 feet, which I don't remember blindsight going more than 10 feet from most other features in 5th edition, if not all other features in 5th edition. I mean, I'm not exactly a 5th edition expert as far I haven't crawled through the depths of all the different subclass options that you can find, but most of the time I see blindsight, it's in a very limited range, like 10 feet max. And it doesn't come up that often. It's, this is a monster power. I mean, let's. This this really is a monster ability. This is meant for the dungeon master to use against the players for the most part. So, in a way, at fifteenth level, the ranger becomes a monster. You're <laughs> invisible. You have multiple attacks. You're doing extra damage on all those attacks with the hunter's mark. You're moving quicker than anybody else and up walls and through water, traveling unseen. And now nothing can hide from you at a range where you don't necessarily have to be in melee with your prey. By the time you get to 15th level as a ranger, you are the best at being invisible. And I don't just mean out of all the player characters because you can become <laughs> invisible better than them, faster than them for a lower spell slot than them and do more things while invisible. No, you are better than the monsters at being invisible because you have this on every invisible monster. You are invisible to them. They are not invisible to you. And, and that bears mentioning. So if another class were to get access to invisibility, it's an infiltration spell, right? You have to wait till greater invisibility, a higher level spell slot to be able to effectively use it in combat. The base version of the spell is just to get past the guards mm -hmm. or to get out of the jail or whatever it might be. This is a combat applicable version of invisibility that casts quicker, lasts a shorter amount of time, but in that way is more effective. I like so much 
that they have given a very useful ability to the ranger without taking anything away from classes that actually get the genuine version of the spell who can use it in ways that the ranger cannot. Can I just say that I love that we're on to 15th level rangers and we're still talking about the 13th level feature? It's so good. Oh, Also notably, <laughs> because I play a bard who has greater invisibility right now on our uh, play-by-post server, and I use greater invisibility all the time. It's one of the first spells, if not the first spell I cast every combat. Here's the thing about it. It costs your concentration. Nature's Veil, the 13th level ranger feature, does not. It is functionally a non-concentration version of greater invisibility that lasts for two turns that you can cast with a single level spell slot it, it there is no way that it can be improved <laughs> we have we, we have got to get off of this point <laughs> okay. at some point but i will i will say this final thing invisibility as a spell as, as the genuine article does not appear on the primal spell list this is the only way that a ranger or a druid is getting it so that getting an ability that would normally cost a higher level spell slot that only other classes would normally have access to is just a little bit of icing on that cake. Oh, it's, it's so delicious. Why do the Rangers only get this good at 13th level? It took until 13th level, but I am excited to talk about Rangers and excited to play one. If we do something that is a, you know, a higher level one shot or something like that, then you, know, you and I can bust out some Rangers. If you want to slog through 13th levels to get there, you go right ahead. I, I was on board since 5th level. I was I liked Rangers before they were cool. You, you play that 5th level Ranger. We do a high level one shot. Let me know. Okay, so... We're going to jump right now from 13th level up to 16th level. <laughs> <laughs> we did get, we did throw it in reverse. 16th level, feet. Yep. 17th level, spell. You, un you unlock the highest level spell slots. You also get the highest proficiency bonus at 17th level, as you do for any other character. I'd say they're moving in tandem again. There you go. You get your plus six proficiency bonus, and you unlock your fifth level spell. After that, we move up to 18th level, where your Hunter's Mark gets improved. The feature is called Foe Slayer, and now your Hunter's Mark spell deals 1d10 damage to its target rather than 1d6. That feels very anticlimactic. <laughs> well, I, I think, first of all, I agree. But second of all, remember, the Bard's 18th level ability was kind of lackluster as well. So I, at least it seems consistent with what's going on for 1D&D. I will say, though, you were attacking two to three times, depending on what kind of ranger you are playing. So that is a potential 3 to 12 extra damage on a turn. It's not nothing. That's true, and I guess you have to compare it, because remember, as we said in the Bard episode, the 18th level class feature that you get in 1D&D is basically the capstone ability that you got in 5th edition. So if we compare that to the level 20 Foe Slayer ability, had the same name and everything, functionally the same, although the particulars are different, we can see that it is a marked improvement, once again, as long as we're using the Hunter's Mark feature. I, I, I'm a little bit iffy on all of your abilities being wrapped up in a spell that you have to cast, but hey. Eldritch Blast for Warlocks. I, I knew you were going to say that at some point. <laughs> um, but at least it's a spell that doesn't require concentration. You know, I, I like that the things that they are giving to the ranger at least don't require their concentration. It's not something that you can get knocked out of. Once you mark something as your target... At least it stays that way. The way that it used to work in 5th edition is that at 20th level, you would get to add your wisdom modifier to the attack roll 
or the damage roll that you get to make against one of your favorite enemies. Now, just the fact that it is no longer tied to favorite enemies makes this better. Yep. Because whoever you apply that Hunter's Mark to is now basically considered your favorite enemy. Also, the chance of really increasing that damage with several Hunter's Mark dice is probably better than adding your Wisdom modifier once. Right, and that was the thing, because you only got to take advantage of this once per turn as a 20th level ability in 5th edition. So it gets improved in a couple of ways. One, like you said, every attack gets the benefit from the increased die, which is an average of, I want to say, it's it's an average of an additional 2 damage per time that you roll it over the original Hunter's Mark. And honestly, I don't feel good about maxing wisdom on a ranger. Make maybe by 20th level, it would have been, you know, it, it would have been up to like maybe a plus four or a plus five. We have an expanded spell list, though. Now with this ranger, we might have some more attractive spells to make that an attractive option. Sure. But, you know, what I was saying is on this attack, if you're looking at how much damage you're able to pump out in a turn, getting to increase the die and having it apply to every attack that you make against the Hunter's Mark target is probably going to be better than getting what is effectively a static, let's just call it plus four, to a single foe if it's one of your favorite enemies one time per turn. Let's let's go ahead and broaden our minds for a moment. Uh, okay, hold on. Let me do it. Okay, I've stretched it out. It's broadened. Good. This is a very high-level character who's getting access to this ability. This is not a character who is only working with what little their class has to give them in a combat. They have allies who can cast high-level magic to buff them. They probably have high-level magic items to assist them as well. You imagine someone casting haste on a ranger that has a scimitar of speed in their hand? I felt like haste was going to come up, and that would make you get a lot more mileage out of this, whereas the original 5e 20th level foe slayer... Doesn't matter if you got haste or not. It's going to be just your wisdom modifier one time per turn. Where did 5e get off with its level 20 capstone (laughs) abilities? I mean, most of them are just like hot garbage. They're bad. I mean, unless you're a rogue or a paladin, man. So in one D&D, they're fixing that in two ways. One is they're giving you that feature earlier. And second is, as we mentioned in our Bard episode, I don't know if you've gone and listened to it or not. You should. It was a good one. When 20th level comes up, you're going to get options. You're going to get options instead of getting stuck with the hot garbage that 5e handed you. Anything else you want to say about Foe Slayer, Rob? Just that I think it is fine. It's It has the potential to be more than it looks on the surface. It's an improvement over what we were expecting. Yeah, not going to lie. It looks pretty boring on paper. I can certainly imagine a lot better 18th level features. Well, I mean, the old 18th level feature was Feral Senses, and we got that out of the way at 15th level. So, again, Rangers just stomping on what (laughs) Rangers used to be. Yeah, look, I mean, the Bard got a much better 18th level ability than the Ranger is getting right here, right? But... Did they? If Yeah, they got Superior Bardic Inspiration, which I was a big fan of. But as as much as I'm not particularly excited by this 18th level ability, it is a significant improvement over what used to be a 20th level ability. So, I mean, comparing 1D&D Rangers to 5E Rangers, it's an improvement. Even if it's not something to get excited about, at least it's better than what I used to have. <laughs> and hey, comparing 1D&D Rangers to 1D&D Bards, 19th and 20th level look awful familiar. 19th level, here comes a feat again, and 20th level... Once again, you unlock an epic boon, a feat of great 
significance or sometimes some, I don't know, not all 20th level feats <laughs> even presented in this document are created equal. We will get to those, but it's the same rewards that you can expect from a bard and from a rogue. For those of you who may not have listened to our last episode, these epic boons that you get at 20th level basically allows a, you no, to no, no, pick don't tell your them. own. Go make them listen to it. Go listen to our podcast. We worked hard on that episode. What if this is the first episode that they came in on, you know? Or they're just here for rangers because screw bards, right? No. Well, I mean... Mm. A 20th level epic boon is something that used to be hidden away in the Dungeon Master's Guide. Now it is basically a choose-your-own capstone ability. It gives you a list of options, some of which are way better than others, but the point of the matter is that you're not stuck with the hot garbage that you had in 5th edition. You get to pick what your 20th level looks like, and you can't be mad about something that you yourself pick. From a list of good options, I might add. Like, there, there are some that aren't very good, but most of them are pretty darn good. So do we want to talk about the... I mean, we've kind of done a little bit of it. Do we want to talk about the ranger class before we get into talking about the subclass, or go ahead and tie it all at the end like we did the bar? Uh, so is the question, do we like 1D&D rangers, or how do we feel about them in general? Yes. I feel like they're better than 5th edition. I mean, I, there's no getting around the fact that they are going to be more effective both in and out of combat than their 5th edition counterparts because the 5th edition was so focused on favored terrains and favored enemies that they ended up just being very niche. And you know what? If you talked to your dungeon master beforehand and set up that in this adventure, we're going to be fighting a lot of goblins and after that, we're going to fight some dragons. And, you know, if you pick those specific options as we go along, then those abilities are going to be relevant to you. Then maybe you're going to actually end up getting some mileage out of that. The thing is, it's probably not going to be particularly effective mileage out of that and what if hunting dragon sounds cool but I, I i'm not really excited by the fact that i'm going to be good at hunting goblins i'm you know maybe i'm not excited to fight goblins maybe i'm not excited to hunt goblins i feel like the way that they have set it up in one DD has taken all the things that they learned from tasha's about kind of uncoupling rangers from that favorite enemy function and making them a little bit more utilitarian, a little bit more useful in multiple situations against multiple enemy types. Versatile. More versatile. I like the direction they're going. Uh, I did go back and look up that uh, in Tasha's Rangers did get one instance of expertise at level one. So it's not a entirely new concept, but I like the fact that they're doubling down on it. I'm saying a lot of words to emphasize that the 6th edition ranger, I think, is going to be fun to play in a way that a 5th edition ranger had to be very specifically curated using all the source books that have been available and published to date in order to make a ranger that was almost this fun. I will say you were talking a lot in our last episode about how you wanted 6th edition, 1 D&D, to learn from the mistakes of 5e. And I think that is extremely evident here. Nowhere more so yet than here. They took very obviously every little step along the way of the work that has been done on the Ranger over the past eight years? Eight years now, yep. Eight years, damn. And it shows on paper that they want this class to be cooler, that they want it to be more effective and more flavorful and mechanically sound, and it shows here. I am, and I can't believe I'm going to say this, and I would have bet money that I would not have said this, but I am more excited to play a 1 D&D &D ranger than I am to play a 1 D&D &D bard. 
listen to the sounds of me falling around in my office. <laughs> um, shock. I am shocked and appalled. Is this just because of what they did to the lore bard? Is it because the lore bard was your favorite and they gutted its magical secrets? It has secrets? nothing to do with what they did to the bard. Because at the end of the day, I do like what they did to the bard. But it's it's the fact that the gap between the 5e ranger and the 6e ranger is so significant. Like, the bard went from being a good class well, to being a good class. Okay, the bard went from being the best class to being still a good class. And a ranger went from being handicapped, barely functional, armpit of all the classes, butt of all the jokes, to being something that you might actually be excited to play. Is that what you're saying? Well, it's not not that, (laughs) because I definitely have less experience playing a ranger, but honestly- It's not that you're right, it's that I can't say that you're right. No, it's it's I'm not excluding that as a possibility or as a factor, but frankly, just what is on the paper here is that good. It's everything that I wanted from the scout rogue archetype. I am good at stuff. I'm good at lots of stuff and I'm very good at it. I am a better spellcaster than the ranger has ever been. I'm a leaf in the wind, I am a shadow in the forest. I have so many tools at my disposal to kick ass and succeed where I need to and it just looks really good and frankly the hunter subclass that we're about to talk about when we were talking about the lore bard i was saying you know this this doesn't really add a lot for me the lore bard does not excite me as much as the bard does the hunter does excite Mm, well you know what i haven't really read up much on the hunter so why don't you take me through it and let's see what the hunter subclass has to offer So right away at level three, you get the ability to bring down wounded prey more effectively. This was part of the hunter subclass for the fifth edition ranger. I'm I'm sorry, I don't remember which which aspect of it it was, if it was Colossus Slayer or one one of the other things. But if the target of your attacks, which let's face it, you're already going to be putting Hunter's Mark on this thing, right? It's already going to be taking bonus damage from what your weapon will already deal. If they are wounded already, if they're lower than their maximum total hit points, when you hit them with an unarmed strike or a weapon attack, you deal an additional D8 of damage. Only once per turn, but you're doing that, especially if you're not the first one to go in combat, you are doing that every turn of the fight, presumably. Right. Okay, so looking this over, it is almost exactly the Colossus Slayer option from the 5th edition Hunter's Prey feature. Which, honestly, even though you had other options in 5th edition, why would you take them? Like, Mm. Colossus Slayer was clearly the better one, and in any ranger or multi-class ranger or anything that I ever made, I I never picked a different one. The fact that you can only deal it once per turn is just the same as it was in 5th edition. The main difference here that I see is the fact that it adds in the option to deal that damage on an unarmed strike attack which previously did not exist in 5th edition. And honestly, unarmed strikes weren't worth doing in 5th edition. So I'm happy to see that as they have improved the unarmed strikes in 1D&D, that they have also added in this option because it's something that you would conceivably want to use now and it would kind of stink to disincentivize you from getting this feature by not including it. I mean, there's not a unarmed strike fighting style available yet in the playtest content and it's not available to rangers. I still don't think this is going to be my preferred method of attack, but it's nice that it's included. Well, you know, you say there's no unarmed strike fighting style and that is true, but what 1D&D does offer is the tavern brawler feat at level 1 and the grappler feat at level 4. 
and both of those do modify your unarmed strikes, and both of those are available to rangers. So while there isn't a fighting style feat that's associated with it, there are ways that you could go that would kind of emphasize that. Right. Like I said, probably not going to be my preferred way to do it, just because I could take those feats and have them synergistically work towards something that my second level class feature was going to give me. But you're not wrong. There is a way to make that effective. Moving on from level 3 to level 6, here comes Hunter's Lore. This is an ability that was associated with a previous subclass. The Monster Slayer Ranger from 5e at 3rd level got the ability to know if a creature nearby you had any damage immunities, resistances, or vulnerabilities, and know what the creature is. In 1D&D, you get those features as well, but instead of how many times you got to use it being tied to your Wisdom modifier, as in 5th edition, now it's whatever you put your Hunter's Mark on. You fire and pull that trigger at something that you are going to be murdering very quickly. So, listening to other content creators talk about these features, I remember one of them mentioning that this was very reminiscent of their time playing Final Fantasy and using the scan feature. Do you remember that? Vaguely, yeah. Yeah, it was like you could scan a creature in a Final Fantasy JRPG and you would get to know whether it had any resistances, immunities, things like that. You would get to understand its hit points where otherwise you wouldn't be able to do it. They just said, you know what? I used to use scan all the time in video games. I'm very excited that I can get a peek behind the curtain, just a glimpse over the other side of the screen and understand a little bit more about the monsters I'm going to be fighting. I remember in uh, Critical Role Campaign 2 when Matt Mercer and Marisha unveiled Beauregard who could get some of this information as a monk by punching them. And I thought, you know, that feels a little weird and clunky, but I actually really appreciate the fact that that feature now exists where it was, you know, kind of an arcane one that was hidden behind a single subclass before. Yeah, it was it was trial and error. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, she could learn uh, some of those like one at a time whenever she punched something. But um, I like the way that this is set up is kind of where I'm, I'm, I'm getting to. And I think that that is a very thematic thing for a ranger to know. These aspects of their prey, of their targets, they know how to take things down. They know how to take things down, and they know how not to approach certain enemies and situations, which is also equally valuable. There's no wasted time in a combat with a hunter. There's no trial and error. Yeah, you know, this feels a little bit like um, like the Witcher to me, which I think is one of those classic ranger archetypes that yes, the, that 5e is trying to evoke. The, the Witchers have all these books about, you know, all these different types of monsters and how you combat them that they have to memorize, that they have to study. And this is, you know, kind of a way of doing that in combat. You can kind of imagine it being whoever you cast your hunter's mark on, you are then focusing and you're remembering all of these things that you've learned. It's like, I know what you are and I know how to take you down. And all it costs me is the spell slot and a little bit of, um, I hesitate to say concentration because (laughs) hunter's mark isn't concentration anymore, not for rangers anyway. But I, I think that's what they're going for with this. And I think that it is an extremely thematic choice in that way. And it is also a skill that I wouldn't mind having. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's right there in the name. As you said, Hunter's Lore. This has been recorded. It has been studied. It has been passed down from one to the next, father to son, master and apprentice, how to approach these situations. And a few important notes about it. It doesn't cost any part of your turn you weren't already using. You were already going to be casting Hunter's Mark on something. 
and now you get to learn exactly how you should and should not take it down, as opposed to the action that it used to cost before. And I hope the Hunter's Mark functions the same way that it does in 5e, where if you take down a target, you can, without spending any additional resources, move it to the next target, meaning that basically you're going to be able to Hunter's Mark every creature in the combat as long as you take them down sequentially at the cost of one spell slot, no concentration, and a couple of bonus actions. And that means that you're going to get a lot of mileage out of this feature. Even if you don't, you have a lot of spell slots now as this hunter. And all you're going to be using them for is Hunter's Mark and turning invisible when you get to a high <laughs> enough level. So well, why the hell not? Someone else could use their spell slots for other things. I mean, I'm not going to, certainly, but someone else could. It's also, <laughs> in older editions, if it, the creature was hidden from divination magic, this trait wouldn't work. There's no such stipulation in 1 D&D. It seems to just be unstoppable. Well, and you know why they set it up that way is because in 5th edition that feature, Hunter's Sense, it felt like it was kind of more of a magical ability, right? It's like this ethereal, ephemeral trait that you acquire as a ranger. You know, you're able to sense things about your opponents, but because it's a pseudo-magical trait, then divination blocking magic would block that ability. However, this is a lot more like that Witcher thing that I was talking about. Like you mentioned, this is this is a lot more mundane. It's a lot more practical. This is something that you have gained from experience and from study more so than a metaphysical quality that you have as this class. Good point. Love it when the text matches the flavor. All right. The next subclass feature that you're going to get doesn't come until 10th level. Uh, and it's called... Wait, hold on. Multi-attack? Yeah, this this is going to confuse dungeon masters like me, I think. This is because that means something very different from the other side of the screen. You said that a ranger was going to turn into a monster, and I'm pretty sure multi-attack is a monster trait. <laughs> it is, but that's that's the normal ranger. This hunter... A monster who hunts monsters. Good grief, it is the witcher. This hunter sets an interesting precedent that I'm actually pretty excited to talk about. You get a new spell that is always prepared for you. It's a classic ranger spell called Conjure Barrage. And it never counts against the spells that you can prepare each day. Conjure Barrage, if you don't know, is basically a action for a ranger to cast a 60-foot cone of damage in front of them. Dexterity saving throw, 3d8 damage. It gives them basically the equivalent of a weak dragon's breath. And it's pretty stinking cool. It's a great way to start mowing down and whittling on a horde. Interestingly, and this is the part that I'm very excited about, is it sets a precedent for downcasting spells. Hmm. Casting a spell that normally requires a higher level spell slot for a reduced benefit. Again, Conjure Barrage, normally a third level spell, normally 3d8, but you can cast it as a first level spell if you're willing to do only 1d8 and second for two. You know, this is that that is a interesting precedent. I remember that it's one that a lot of these other content creators that I've been kind of perusing over the weekend have been discussing. I, I'm generally in favor of that. That is interesting. Obviously, I don't think they should do it with every spell level because, I mean, a downcast fireball would still be ridiculous. Um, <laughs> but in, in the case of Conjure Barrage, I don't think that's going to break anything. It, it is interesting that they've given you that option. Now, I mean, you say you don't want it to happen to a fireball. And I don't want it to happen like that for everybody, but if we're doing it here, where else can we do it and who else would have access to it? This is locked behind a particular subclass. Could an evocation wizard cast a reduced threat fireball? This this is the kind of thing I'm thinking. Of. It's a fun mental exercise. I want to know 
if this will come up again, and if so, where? I'm thinking a fireball cast at first level, dealing one-third of the damage, would still be... 2d6? Rounded up to 3d6. <laughs> damage over that area. Stupid. Maybe they could reduce the... I don't know. Then it would basically be kind of like an ice... Anyway, taking a look at this feature again, uh, I, it does set an interesting precedent. Um, I'm interested to see if it pops up in other places. I'm not floored by how it is implemented here, but it's useful. It gives you something else to do with those first-level spell slots because you still haven't unlocked the ability to become invisible yet. So, you know, you, you need something to do with those for the next three levels. And hey, again, you're not getting the evocation spells as a ranger. This is a good AoE option. Conjure Barrage, interestingly, you could have selected, because it does appear on the primal spell list, you could have picked it up at ninth level. It just would have counted as one of the spells that you had to prepare. And you would have had to use that third level spell slot on it. Right. It, it is interesting, because I don't think that Conjure Barrage as a third level spell really warrants the use of your only third level spell for the day. So in that way, I do like, I, I would probably be using my second level spell slots to pull this off. Honestly, it's kind of what I'm thinking. You know, that way it still has a respectable damage. It has a huge range, and I'm not using my trump card on this. Yep, it's just a tool in the tool belt. I like having stuff there. I'm not. I'm not floored by it. I'm. I'm more excited by the precedent than I am for the actual class feature. But what I am excited about, Stephen, what I am excited about is the 14th level class feature for the hunter. It's pretty good. All right, let me scroll back up and see what it is you're talking about. 14th level, Superior Hunter's Defense. Right, so here's the basic deal. You know Uncanny Dodge for the Rogue. I do use it all the time. Yep, you use your reaction, you take half the damage that you want to take. And you can do that as your reaction every turn. Yes, yes, I'm, I'm aware of how that works for Rogues. Uh, I'm assuming that this is going to be some sort of modification on that. This is that, but objectively better. So at 14th level, if somebody attacks you, not only do you use your reaction and automatically half the damage, you can, if you want to and the situation permits, redirect the other half of that damage to someone within five feet of you. Hmm. So I assume that the intent here is like something is being cast at you from far away or someone is slinging arrows or you know firebolts or something at you from a distance and you are in melee with some other creature. Not only can you get out of the way, you can get them into the way or you can deflect the incoming missiles or spells in such a way that it is redirected at one of your opponents. I think that's, I don't know why that's here. But, like, from a thematic sense, but it's cool, and I like it. I'm frankly not as concerned with spells at the moment. I'm thinking about heavy melee attacks is what excites me. I run into the thick of the fight as the ranger, and I get a couple of guys around me, and one of them comes at me with his big greatsword. I use my short sword or whatever it is that I'm using, to deflect the blow and swoop that blade into his friend standing next to me. And I embarrass these guys as I make them kill one another in the middle of a melee combat. It is gorgeous. Yeah, that is pretty cool. You have such martial mastery that not only do you not have to worry about taking as much damage, you turn the enemy's strikes into something that works for you. Yeah, and I do like the fact that this is separated into two separate aspects of the ability. So you don't have to redirect the damage in order to have the damage. 
the uncanny dodge half of superior hunter's defense is still always on it's still always available for you to use your reaction to have the damage even if you can't shove it into jimmy which is going to be wonderful this is so stinking cool i i I love this a whole lot i cannot wait to have the opportunity to use this because your martial your mastery of the martial arts as a martial character as an you are an expert at this so that you can turn things that should be threatening you into something that works for you your enemies are killing your enemies and you are standing in the middle just looking like a gosh darn god and it's so six e so looking back over the hunter subclass, I'm I'm just getting Witcher vibes from it. Everything but this tenth level feature that allows you to use the Conjure Barrage. To me, that's that's a pretty magical ability. Uh, but the rest of this just kind of like drips of Geralt of Rivia. Yeah, and and I kind of and I kind of dig that. Um, I I am I'm here for it, Steve. I am so hyped. I would ask you how you felt about the. <laughs> Hunter subclass, like we've been talking about doing this whole time, but I think you've already showed your hand on that. I like it. And, you know, I, I got to say, I kind of agree. It, it, it seems good. I, I, I think I like this. This, I think the ranger as a whole has really made some steps in the right direction. The hunter seems to be doubling down and giving you some abilities that, yeah, many of them were already available to different types of rangers in 5e, but they were good. They cherry-picked a couple of good abilities, and they added on some really unique things if you're willing to stick with a hunter long enough. Yeah, and since we've already covered the ranger as a whole... For the hunter, I know I just geeked out about the 14th level ability, but just knowing the immunities, resistances, and vulnerabilities of one of your enemies so that you can pass that on to the arcane caster, to the priest, who is able to deal multiple kinds of elemental damage to a creature and not have them waste a high-level spell slot on something that wasn't going to work in the first place. I didn't gush over that enough because I, I feel like that's obvious. I th- that is so valuable. You know, that is really going to make the ranger an impactful member of your party, even if it is just because once every fight, everyone's going to look to the ranger and say, hey, should I should I cast fireball or not? Even if that only happens once every combat, which it will happen more than that because of the way the hunter's mark feature can jump around and you can get it to multiple creatures throughout the course of each fight. Even if it only happened once every combat, it's going to happen every single combat. You know, yeah, and and I feel like in Five E, a ranger. I, I hate to be this way, but when are you ever gonna look to the Five E ranger for anything other than maybe some intro damage? You when you need someone to carry your stuff. Now, there there are certain subclasses in Five E that were released later on, like the Gloomstalker, that are really good at doing a thing, and that thing is pumping some damage downfield early on in the combat. But I, I've listened to some content creators who have bemoaned the loss of flavor from the ranger. All right. It's 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 here. If you felt like it was missing, it's here in the hunter subclass. I don't know how well it's going to come up in other ranger subclasses as we move on, but you know what? Here it is. My favorite thing about this sixth level feature is how it comes right after being fifth level and all the good things that come from that. <laughs> and my favorite thing about the 14th level feature is it comes one level after the 13th level feature <laughs> where you get to become invisible with a first level spell slot for two turns. Steve is probably going to be looking forward to a different subclass for Ranger than me, but we're both pretty excited about what this class has in store in the upcoming editions of D&D. Based on what you know about it, how do you feel 
What do you think? We'd love for you to come and tell us about it, share your opinions, and let us know if we missed anything in the text that might change our minds. Yeah, we're human. We get things wrong sometimes. I mean, Rob is half of this show, so it could happen. Precisely. Best way to do that is to come join our Discord or reach out to us on social media. Stay tuned or check out the description of the episode to learn how to find us. Thank you all for tuning in for yet another conversation about the 1D&D playtest content. We've already covered we've already covered Bard and Ranger, but that is only 11 pages of this 38-page document that was released just earlier this week. So, there's still plenty more to cover. That's right. We're going to be going through the rest of that very soon on this show, and while we tried our best to stay on task this episode, next time we're going rogue. And I can't wait. Ah, I see what you did there. That joke was sneaky good. Mmm. We'll see you soon. The outro music you're listening to right now is called Mega Epic, and the intro music is called Super Epic. Both were composed by the wonderfully talented Alexander Nakarada and utilized under a Creative Commons license. If you enjoyed our content, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and review on your listening app of choice. To keep up with us on social media, look us up on facebook.com forward slash bardictwinspiration and on Twitter at btwinspiration. Want to interact with us directly? Come join our Discord. After all, who are we if not people who are willing to roll the dice on making some new friends? Links in the description. Come check it out. Alright, I am recording, and I'm going to kick us off. You ready? I am also recording. You should do a slide into my DMs joke to start off, because I did sup players last time. I will not. You can do that for the third one if you want. At least at the outset. They they really were the the New Jersey of <laughs> classes. Oh, ouch. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's probably unfair, but I, I'm I'm the armpit of America, the armpit of the five B classes. No, I mean they weren't the worst one. <coughs> monks, monks, monks. And if you made it down to five with your crippled ass, your your severely who is likely to not be able to fix their situation, straight up died. Look at how long we've been talking, and you were afraid that this episode was going to be too short. This is a good one, and I'm I'm quite mm. chuffed with this. <laughs> uh, I am positively erect. You can cut that out. I probably should. We have we we have got to get off of this point at some point. But I will I will say this final thing. Car. That was that was a very anticlimactic final thing that you just said there, wasn't it? Though. <laughs>